Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of I'd Like to Speak to the Arts Manager. My guest is Jackson Cooper, Major Gifts Officer for the Pacific Northwest Ballet. Jackson and I have been talking about doing this special episode since I launched my podcast last year, and I was so excited to finally put our idea into action. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hey, Catherine. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Happy Monday. Happy Monday, indeed. Oh, Oh my my gosh. A new week. (laughs) I was telling my friend, I was like, if there could just be a, a, this is so cliche to say, but I was like, with the pandemic, I especially feel this way, that if there was a day in between Sunday and Monday, so I could get all the stuff done to prepare for my week, that would be great. Yeah. That would just I be great. <laughs> yeah. And my work week starts on Tuesday. So I get oh, like the Sunday God. boot on Monday instead. <laughs> yeah, you get the you get the Sunday scaries on Monday. <laughs> yeah, it's a blessing and a curse, you know. Yeah, that's so good. I'm, yeah. I'm so excited we're finally doing this. Me too. Me too. I know. I've been looking forward to this. I know. And I've been I've been uh I've been really excited. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Seattle, Washington right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you in your office or are you working from home? I'm working from home. Uh, I go into the office uh, probably once every two weeks or so. Okay. Yeah, but but currently we're still working remotely from home. Yeah. Cool. How's that been? You know, I just ordered a really nice uh, new lamp, so I'm very excited about that (laughs) and some new bookshelves. So I've been really settling in well. I actually really enjoy working from home. Um, My job as major gifts officer was actually spending quite a bit of time outside of the office before COVID, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. meeting with donors and stuff. I mean, there was a huge amount of administrative work that still had to be done. So I was in the office for uh, quite a bit, but I'm used to being out and about. um, And I actually work really well from home. (laughs) Although sometimes it does feel like solitary confinement when you're on Zooms for 12 hours a day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For me, the novelty of Zoom never really wore off because I was mostly using it for personal calls and catching right. up and having like cocktail hour with my family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I can't imagine where a world where Zoom is your primary method of communicating with your whole team. Yeah, it's it's challenging, but what I've been what's been really great about especially PNB and I I, I can't speak for other arts organizations, but I know with PNB we are very conscious about making sure uh, meetings are not too back to back often, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we can have Mm -hmm. a break. Um, And also that meetings happen in a cluster. So that's been a really great practice that I was like, oh, I feel like all arts organizations should do that. (laughs) You know, like no meetings on Fridays, you know, and, uh, and, you know, like, um, light days on Mondays and stuff like that. There's just a lot of unwritten rules 
that um, I hope people are being very conscious of when it comes to Zoom because I don't think the virtual, uh, even virtual meetings and this flexible work environment, I don't think that's going to go away for a very, very long time. Yeah. So I just have so many questions in terms of your current work situation. So Mm -hmm. it's been a year, more than a year now. Um, So how have you been coping with a change in your work environment and just how different the world is now than even in February of 2020? Yeah. And I mean like your work life, your social life, right. Whatever, however you want to tackle that question. Yeah. I think the thing that's changed the most for me is uh, genuine boundaries for things. I think what's been really beautiful about, about this time has been, it's kind of forced us, especially in the arts, um, to really articulate our boundaries when it comes Mm -hmm. to things like work, when it comes to things like life, but even like relationships, you know, I mean, I constantly see on LinkedIn this, uh, you know, the meme about this meeting could have been an email. And I always want, well, and I always want to say, you know, this meeting should always have been an email. You know, it's like, it's Mm -hmm. like, there was a lot of things, a lot of boundaries that we just never named pre pandemic. And even during the pandemic, there's quite a bit of things in the social contract of work and um, work environment, work relationships that I've really been so moved by um, discovering. Um, For me, it has been allowing for honest and vulnerable conversations in every situation. So not just with my coworkers about, you know, like, how are you doing? Like, no, how are you really doing? You know, how are we doing as a mental check-in, which um, uh, I know at PNB, our leadership and uh, our bosses take really, really genuine care for making sure that we're all doing well, uh, you know, in terms of like, if you need to take time off, please take time off, you know, all that. Um, But I know for donors... And in speaking with constituents and patrons to just invite in the honest conversation about how they are doing and how much they miss the arts and how excited they are for it to come back. That's been a really beautiful thing. And so, again, it's kind of taking away this boundary about, you know, what we can talk about, you know, and Mm -hmm. so and personal feelings or, you know, your own feeling as a human being, (laughs) uh, as much as we like to say that that's what the arts are about, I think there's still the stigma of work and you're at work. Um, But developing that human connection, I think, has been a really, really great thing that I've been dealing with. So, again, maintaining a high level of vulnerability while also remaining focused and understanding how to keep myself safe, how, how to keep my family, my friends, um, everyone around me safe during this. Um, yeah. And making sure that those boundaries translate even after we start to go back. Oh, for sure. I think that's been the biggest lesson for a lot of people in kind of like a crash course almost in 
actually having to figure out a work-life balance because I know pretty much all the jobs I've ever had my boss has been or there have been you know senior level people who would come in and they would brag about how they were you know checking their email and until like 10 o'clock at night and then they would come into work at seven o'clock in the morning yeah it was like a point of pride for them yeah and I just never understood that Mm -hmm. like for me it's very much a I want to leave work at work and I'll come home and I'll yeah vent to my husband about oh my gosh well this crazy thing happened and then I'm done yeah I put it aside and that's the end of that conversation and but that was when I was working in a very traditional brick and mortar office and I know Mm -hmm. for my one friend she's been working from home since March of last year and she had to create a very dedicated office space in her home because she found herself just working constantly and not in a healthy or productive way. Mm-hmm. It was just like my couch has suddenly become my office. Yeah. And now I'm checking my email at eight o'clock at night and working yeah. on a project at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning when my work day doesn't start till whatever, 10 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very real thing. And, and I agree with you. I think, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm that same way, but I can also get, because I've been in a lot of work environments where, you know, your boss is sending you emails at 10 o'clock at night. And, uh, and, and I like to tell, um, the undergrads I mentor and like the young professionals, I, I always say like, try not to get email on your phone. <laughs> as much as you can and uh and also turn it off at 5 p.m because yeah yes while the arts are you know a a living work form and we're constantly in production so to speak it's like if it can't wait until tomorrow then that's a problem you know it's like then that's probably not a good work environment you should be in because um yeah yeah so i i've been very much better. And even before the pandemic, when I came to PNB, PNB has a very um, beautiful, healthy work culture in that regard, because they're like, okay, five o'clock, you know, six o'clock, like, see you later. You know, we're good. We'll see you tomorrow. And (laughs) yeah, please. Yeah. (laughs) And especially in the pandemic, I know uh, leadership has been like, no, actually make a conscious effort to close your laptop, like don't get on, like, you know, (laughs) when you're on vacation, you're on vacation. But I know that, that, that this pandemic has probably also exacerbated the unhealthy work environments in the arts Mm -hmm. to, to, like you said, like force people or not force people, I guess people feel more inclined to work more because Mm -hmm. there's this weird, sense of time you know everything's in a rush and yet we're moving so slow you know like like yeah so these these big steps are actually tiny little steps and so people feel like they have to work and get it all done and well you know i'm just sitting at home what else am i doing i might as well work and that's just that's that's not healthy Mm -hmm. you know there's nothing else to do it's not like you're gonna you know I don't even, I don't even know what people are doing now. Like, are people going away on vacation? Are people, 
meeting friends for a dinner I have no idea but it's kind of like time has suddenly become a very real social construct and what do we do with our day now that it's it is very much like a self-directed work day it's very weird you realize you realize how how boring you are when you spend all day by yourself (laughs) that's that's what I've learned I was like wow I gotta get some hobbies I gotta like start knitting or like adult coloring books and even like even like while I'm working it's like I fig I I have had to create a very strict productivity regimen in order for me to not just, you know, let the day pass me by, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and I know other memes and stuff being, I keep bringing up memes, I guess, cause all these memes are so true, but yeah. you know, these memes about like in the pandemic, sending one email is like climbing Mount Everest. It's like, that's kind of a real thing because yeah as this social contract construct of time has shifted, so has our level of productivity. And it's been really interesting because suddenly now what value we assign to our productivity is kind of being wiped away. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's like how productive are you? And it's like, well, is it, are you measuring it? Are you personally measuring it by the things you get done or what you have done, or who you have talked to. I think everyone has that differently, but I think it's really giving us all this existential moment in time to be like, you know, how am I adding value to my work and to the organization and to the arts, you know, and how am I measuring that? Have I been measuring it just by my to-do list or have I been measuring it by, you know, stepping back and looking at where my position fits within the mission, vision and values of the organization. It's really fascinating. I think we're all kind of meeting that moment. Yeah. Yeah. So you work in development, aka fundraising. So (laughs) what changes have you seen in that field over the last year plus? The biggest thing is one that fundraisers have noticed, um, but I don't know if it's noticeable to the general public, that more people are generous than maybe ever during this time. And it's been really interesting to see that people really are putting their money and investment into not just arts, cultural, and heritage organizations, but organizations that they love and adore um, Mm -hmm. because they believe so well in the mission of the organization. Now, the flip side of that is you also see how well certain organizations have done in developing that culture of philanthropy um, and, you know, investment in mission and how some others haven't. But it's been really beautiful to see how generous people have been with not only their resources, but their time, their input. Um, you know, I, I know for PMB, we've shifted to a digital season. And for my work, I've had a lot of donors give me extensive input 
into how well it's been going or what we could improve on, um, stuff like that. So that's been a really beautiful thing to see is people's generosity. I think also the trends for fundraising is there's been this kind of emphasis on communication with donors, like constant communication with donors. So it's never always um, related to giving a gift. There's now this merger between uh, marketing and fundraising that people, I think administrators are starting to see the value in that because mm -hmm. when, you know, when earned, in, when earned income gets drastically cut, you rely on gifts and contributed income. And so then marketing and development have to work together rather than stay siloed um, in order to, you know, retain their audience who are also their donors. So yeah. it's, and that sounds like such a basic concept of like, well, yeah, they should be working together, but that's not as common in arts organizations as many people would think. And so there's, this merger of the two departments coming together to say, okay, how are we reaching just our audience, not just our ticket buyers, but our donors, because all of them are an audience and how do we retain them has mm -hmm. been a big kind of think trend too. So this stewardship of the people who are in your audience, that's also I've seen uh, emerge over the last year. Yeah, I was gonna ask if you feel like at least at PNB, if you find yourselves being more collaborative in your programming and other kind of like artistic things with your donors now that everything has moved so virtual. Well, what's interesting is at PNB, we already even pre-pandemic had the combined marketing and development department. So mm -hmm. we're the revenue team. And one of the great things about the revenue team and one of its incredible strengths, and it's led by our absolutely phenomenal uh, chief revenue officer, Leah Chiarelli. And she really instills this collaborative spirit on how, not how we can market, the artistic programs, but how we can really showcase the incredible work that the company is doing. And I think that's, I think that's something that the two departments and especially, I mean, I'll speak for development just in general in the arts. Um, I think the thing that the pandemic has shown is that it's like, we don't have to just market shows, we have to show the work that's being done and celebrate that. Mm -hmm. So we really do have to go personal and be very direct with donors and audiences to say like, this is what we're doing to survive in the pandemic. Um, again, it's inviting in that vulnerability and that um, ability to have these conversations but I think the communication around like what you're actually doing, people really do want to hear. Like people want to know how you're producing an entire digital season during a pandemic. Oh yeah, um, I you would know, say yeah. More than anything else, 
you are just being very transparent with people and exactly. they want to know they want to know what their money's going to they don't want it to be a secret but people love that behind the scenes stuff like like you said you're making the whole season digital and virtual and that's like really cool but people also want to know what what's new I'm sure they want to know what's new about it and what's kind of novel about it and what challenges you're facing. And there's just so much information to share. And I, I mean, I really love when organizations are transparent like that. I think it's just so important. Well, and the interesting thing is that, you know, we always talk about the fact that we're, we have shifted from being a ballet company to being a film production company. Mm. And it's not, it's not, Untrue. I mean, we have, but what's fascinating is that the pandemic has forced us all to rely on, you know, Tiger King and Love is Blind and Netflix for entertainment that sometimes we as arts organizations, because streaming is so ingrained in our culture, um, we forget to be transparent about like, this is what we're doing. Because I think people, and I think when when the curtain is pulled back on that, people are really interested. One of our, um, I know I get a lot of compliments from about our digital season because we've been producing in the midst of it. But I know we do this really incredible, uh, Dylan Wald, who's one of our um, dancers, he creates and edits this pre-show video it's about it's always like two minutes long and people can see them on the pmb instagram but they're called five minute call and it's just shots of the dancers backstage at mccall hall getting ready for filming Mm -hmm. and also you know images of the camera setups and you know our incredible videographers you know directing and stuff and so and i know i get a lot of compliments about that from from donors and patrons saying it's just so neat to see it. You know, like you said, it's so novel what we're doing. And the more we can be transparent about the process of the work, I think the better. Because we're all still saying like, this is weird, right? You know, it's like, we're we're all like, this is so weird, you know, that we're having to literally produce a motion picture you know, every, every few months and start to rehearse and, you know, in, in pods and stuff. And, and so I think the more that people can see the behind the scenes, it, it's, it, it just blows their mind. I, and it, yeah. and it brings them closer to us and, and really makes them go like, wow, this, they're doing something really different. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like your audience has grown in terms of diversity whether it's racial socioeconomic anything like that because they're able to get more up close and now it's suddenly more relatable i will say yes i don't know the exact numbers and i know that we that pmb had been doing a lot of really incredible um audience engagement work prior to the pandemic um which has shown that um, over time, the PMB audience has gotten actually very younger and therefore Mm -hmm. much more diverse. Um, 
but I, I can say that with the digital season, uh, it has broken down so many barriers of access so that people from all over the country, um, all over the world, we have, you know, we have subscribers in other countries now, you know, and we have subscribers in all 50 states. I mean, it's really incredible what this digital season has been able to do. And, you know, the, the, the hurdle for the next few years is, you know, how do we keep them engaged? How do we, you know, retain them and, and, do we move them up through the donor pipeline? Do we keep them as ticket buyers, whatever? Like those are just the big questions we're dealing with right now. But what has mm -hmm. been really incredible has been that we can now become a global company because of this access to streaming yeah, and, and the affordability of our tickets um, allows a wider audience to become engaged with PNB that might not otherwise feel um, feel that they could walk into a concert hall, you know? Right. Um, we do a very good job communicating our accessibility and um, kind of breaking down the barriers of, of what ballet is to be accessible to the community. But, you know, the fact remains that there are still communities and people that don't feel welcome at a concert hall, you know, or a symphony or an opera, they feel like they don't belong there. And mm -hmm. so giving the access to streaming this in from the comfort of your couch, I think gives a lot more people kind of breaks down again, that demystifying, it demystifies ballet as this um, unwelcoming institution and and uh brings them closer to the work which is beautiful right yeah Gosh. i feel like we could just talk for hours about how <laughs> how much the pandemic has changed the arts but i'm putting on like i don't know if you listen to wait wait don't tell me but i'm putting on my mm -hmm. Siegel hat mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm, yeah i'm going to say Jackson Cooper, it's been really great to talk to you about this, but we've asked you here to play again. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So the, the real reason for our call today is really to talk about the job search and being new in the workforce mm -hmm. in the middle of a pandemic. So you told me when we were talking um, a few weeks ago that you work as a mentor. And I'm curious to know more about that. What drove you to do that? How do you, how do you find yourself in that mentor role? I have an incredible mentor myself, um, William Henry Curry, who was for 20 years the resident conductor of the North Carolina Symphony. And I met him when I was um, 16 or so, and I was a student conductor for the North Carolina Symphony's Youth Symphony. And we became fast friends, mostly because he had been coaching me for conducting. And then we met several times, and we, and we only talked about music, which was fine. And then suddenly we started to talk about life and what I wanted to do because at the time I was work I had started working in arts fundraising when I was 14 but I also really liked conducting I liked uh 
being on the other side of the table, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And because I felt that they really informed one another, like being an artist, you understand, or like you can't be an arts administrator and, you know, draw up contracts for an artist without having been an artist first. And as an artist, you can't understand what it means when decisions are made. Like you can't, it's hard to, it's harder to see, to understand where institutions are coming from if you've never been in those settings. So I really wanted to do both. And Bill, having worked as a music director and stuff, he was both. Um, and had been both in various situations, New York City Opera, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, Indianapolis Symphony. And um, so it was like he knew what it was like to not just study scores and do it, but also work with marketing departments, work with the executive directors, raise money. So we ended up starting this mentorship and we uh, just kind of fell into it. And he's been my mentor ever since and given me a lot of great advice and stuff. And I knew that um, I knew that I w- I've been very lucky to have not just had Bill, but a lot of other great arts leaders in my life and also currently now, even today, um, who just recognize that I am, I really love this and I'm really interested in it and I'm good at it. And so they Mm -hmm. always say like, you know, so I've had a lot of great mentors who've said like, you know, how can I help you? How can you do this? And so as I've been working in the professional career and stuff and now starting to teach and, and still in grad school and such, um, I really have been wanting to position myself as a resource for arts administration students and artists who are interested in going into the field uh, to come in because there were a lot of things that I learned trial by fire that Mm -hmm. I wish I was told when I was starting out in the arts. And uh, my thing is that like, if I can save you as an undergrad or an arts admin, like uh, if I can save you four or five years of having to like learn these lessons, quote unquote, the hard way, but and mm-hmm. and just tell you them, like uh, all, all the better, all the better. I can say I wish I'd had somebody <laughs> when I had just graduated from college back in. 2012. Um, So what are some things that you tell your mentees if they're not maybe, maybe like one kind of blanket piece of advice, but some or maybe just something that constantly is coming up and or that you would really like for somebody to know as they're getting ready to graduate from college and go out into the workforce? I think the the one that I, so, so I'll split it up into two because one leads into the other. And the first okay. is don't be afraid, don't be afraid to reach out. And that kind of leads into a, a second part of it, which is uh, develop real relationships with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started working in arts admin again, when I was like 14, 15 
And it was all because my mom said, because I, I said, you know, I really, I saw a production at North Carolina theater and I said, I don't want to be an actor. <laughs> I don't want to work backstage, but whatever this is like this feeling of like these 800 people like yelling and cheering and standing ovation. I was like, I want to do that. I just want to do something like that. And I remember mm -hmm. I was talking to my mom. I said, I think I want to work on like the business side of theater, like producing and stuff. And I said, I, I should send an email. And she goes, well, what's the worst they can say? No. Yes. And so like that really kind of just was a light bulb for me. And that's something that I tell my mentees where I go like, yeah, email the artistic director at Lincoln Center. Email, you know, um, this, you know, uh, the director at LACMA. You know, it's like, go ahead and do that because what's the worst they can say? No. But if, right. you, if you express interest that you're like, I'm just getting started. I'm not asking for a job. I just want to hear from you. I just want to talk. I just want to hear about your journey. Like people will give you the time of day. Mm -hmm. And it's important to just develop that real relationship with people. So it's not transactional. It's personal. Yeah. And, and some people will, you know, keep the ball in the air and some people won't and that's okay. So I always try to tell them like, really don't be afraid to put yourself out there and be very confident in what you, what you put out there. Yeah. Because that's how you build your network. No one's gonna, mm -hmm. no one's gonna call you. No one's gonna sit by the phone and call you unless you put yourself no. out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to imagine on some level, it's very flattering for the person on the receiving end to hear from this, you know, 20 something person, hey, I think you're really cool. I want to know your story that there has to be some amount of, well, stroke my ego, please. Yeah. On, <laughs> on their part. And that's always a good thing. Like you should always be, you know, flattering to the person that you're talking to and just right. the reaching out has to be like the biggest thing. I mean, my, yes, be professional yeah. and be courteous to them too, because they are humans. But my father always jokes. He uh, he always jokes. He goes, "If there's one thing people love to talk about, it's themselves." So <laughs> you know. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So so no, I I agree. And then you know there are tactile things that I say. Um, well, there's some like soft skill things, you know, where it's like, you know, always, you know, again, like work-life balance, mm -hmm. I always tell them is really important. And I go, the, the sooner you can put those boundaries in on your life, the better. Um, because I, I had to, uh, you know, I had to define those myself through quote unquote, the hard way, you know, it was like, I had sacrificed my own personal health for work several times and, um, you know, just ended up in a bad place and then realized that it's at the end of the day, it's, it's not worth it. You know, it's like, yeah. and the only, the only person who's realizing who is recognizing that I'm doing all this work is myself, you know? And so, yeah. and then, you know, I also tell them about, you know, office politics will always be there. Um, and then tactile things like, you know, 
here's how you write a good cover letter. Here's how, here's how you format a resume. Here's, here's what you do prior to a job interview. You know, it's, it's, um, it's not all, you know, first date mentality. It is like, you have to be prepared with questions about the job description and you have to Mm -hmm. align your answers with what the job description is asking. And so there's a lot of, so I say those, but at the center of it, I go like really the way that you'll succeed in the arts is through, you know, developing real relationships with people, not being Mm -hmm. the transactional person, but really, you know, having a good network of, of people that you support and who support you and that you, um, you know, you want to cheer on and, and that's just developing your network. Right. Mm -hmm. So how are you encouraging them to network right now when we can't? Yeah, no, 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 it's, no, 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 it's funny. It's funny. I, uh, I was just tell, I told some undergrads the other week this, I said, I think you have an advantage because we are all virtual. So now you can set up a zoom. Now you can set up a phone call, you know, and, and again, this time is a social construct. It's like people, people are, (laughs) there's no way people are filling up their entire day with work. Like, come on. Uh, So, you know, it's like, you can have the opportunity to talk to the director at LACMA, you know, and, and, and people I think are more accessible now. Um, I think that's really been the thing that this has also given is that again, going back to what I was saying at the beginning of the interview, this vulnerability and this transparency um, of relationships, I think this has allowed, allowed people to open up and connect via um, email, LinkedIn, you know, it's like a lot of my connections, you were one of my connections, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like, this would be a great time to do a plug for LinkedIn. Exactly. (laughs) Totally. But also I've connected with so many other people on LinkedIn that I probably would never have thought to connect with. Um, And I, and, and also Instagram, I've connected with a lot of artists over Instagram and, and, never been like, oh, we need to work together, but just like, hey, love your work, like keep it up, I really do that. Like, we all need this validation, especially during the pandemic, because we are by ourselves and we do feel like we're doing work in a vacuum. So I I encouraged the undergrads I work with, I go, you know, get on LinkedIn, send a message, send an email, like that's the best way to network. But on top of that, I will say, because it is digital, it is going to be a little harder to maintain it. Because again, we get in our vacuum, we get on our laptop and we, oh, shoot, I forgot to email this person. Or, oh, man, I, they, they emailed me back and then I dropped the ball and, oh, my God, they're going to hate me. They're going to hate me. And we have to give ourselves grace when it comes to doing that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how, what challenges are current undergrads facing as they enter the workforce in this particularly weird time? Because I know a lot of organizations are doing like kind of a flex thing where they Mm -hmm. work from home most of the time, but they still have to be able to come into the office. So how is that 
shaking things up? It's interesting because I've been working with two undergrads in particular who are just about to graduate and they're starting to look for jobs and I've just been helping them with their cover letters and, and interview coaching. Mm-hmm. And they, there's one who's, who's on the West coast and she goes, she goes, well, should I apply for New York jobs? I was like, well, do you want to go to New York? She goes, yeah. I said, then you should apply for New York jobs, but you can, <laughs> but you can ask for flexibility because there is this expectation now that you as artists can ask for that. Um, mm. And the, I think that's unsaid. I, I might, I think I might be the first person to ever say that out loud, but I think there is this workers rights kind of conversation happening now where you can negotiate stuff like this. You know, it's like, do I have to, do I, do I really have to move immediately for a job or can it wait a few months? Um, And I always tell them that too. It's like, you know, definitely be transparent and upfront with your situation where you're like, well, I'm in Oregon or I'm in Washington, I'm in California, but when do you expect me to uh, be in New York? Because they're all, no one has sort of set in a back to work date except the major corporations, you know, like Microsoft and Amazon, but arts organizations, everyone's still kind of, still kind of winging it. So I've been telling undergrads that like, go ahead and apply for these big positions, you know, or positions in other States that, you might feel are a little out of your reach, a little ambitious um, because this flexibility has allowed for, or this pandemic has allowed for flexibility. The other thing I will say is that um, there is also a, I think truer, I've in the job descriptions I've read with my undergrads, it's like there's this kind of focus now on um, really what are the hard skills you have as an arts administrator mm-hmm. and typically i've i've noticed just in my friends in the past and stuff who've gone hired it's like if they didn't have some hard skills uh it was always like oh you can learn it on the job and stuff and now there's a lot of arts organizations that are kind of um increasing the expectation that you walk in and then pedal to the metal start to produce stuff Um, so again, that's another workers rights thing where you can say like, you know, I don't know too much about this, but I hope that's not the deterrent for hiring me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think about this all the time when I would go in for a job interview, if it was located outside of where I was currently living and they would always ask, are you willing to relocate for this position? I mean, what if I had said? No, (laughs) like 10 years ago, if I'd said, no, I'm not willing to relocate to be the operations assistant for the Houston Symphony, which was my first job out of college, they would have been like, oh, okay, well, it's been really great chatting to you. Yeah. Um, And we wish you the very best of luck. (laughs) Right, right. And the conversation would have completely ended there. But 
I feel like with production and operations and tech, that is kind of like a, you really do need to be there kind of thing. Yeah. And, and <laughs> fundraising too. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, one, again, one of my undergrads I'm working with, she wants to go into individual giving and major gifts. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay, yeah, that is kind of an in-person thing. Cause you'll be meeting with donors and prospects, but even then there still can be a little bit of a grace period. You know, it's not going to be the, oh, I'm up and moving tomorrow. Like you can ask, like, when realistically are you going to be opening up? Or when is production starting? You know, when is, mm -hmm. when is production starting? When there's just still so many unknowns that you can use to your advantage when you get hired. Yeah. yeah. Or when you're interviewing specifically. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. I I hear a lot more stories now about people who are, my friend's sister, for example, um, got a promotion and they wanted her to move to, I think, like the main corporate office. And she mm -hmm. said, well, I would really love to just try this job from home for whatever period of time that they negotiated. And if it's going really well and I, you see me being successful in it at the end of that period, then I would like to continue working from home. But yeah. if I'm not successful in your eyes, then yeah, I'll, I'll move. Right. Um, and I, I just, I love this change that's happening because mm -hmm. I think you just open yourself up to so many more amazing and super qualified people when you don't uh, commit yourself fully to yes this person has to live here yeah yeah immediate at least not in the immediate here and now and that's been a that's that's a great point and that's also I'm glad that that's happening as well because again that ties into a lot of arts organizations are you know trying to figure out how their organization is adapting towards the um evolving and um, implementing uh, EDI work, you know, mm -hmm. equity, diversity, mm -hmm. and inclusion. And that's a huge yeah. thing is access. It's like, yeah. how much, how much access um, are you preventing or, and also granting um, as an arts organization? And that is a form of gatekeeping, you know, this like, you are not allowed to apply for this job if you don't live here. And now there's a flexibility that is coming up that is, I think, organization by organization. And I think there is an expectation that eventually you will move. But I think it has to rely on the person being interviewed to hold the organization accountable for that. Because oh, sure. if we've learned anything from this last year, it's that most all of our jobs can be virtual exactly <laughs> so, you know i was like even even myself where my you know i'm frontline fundraiser and i'm like yeah i've done asks over email and asks over zoom and asks over a, a phone and it's just like mm -hmm. oh this is interesting like yeah i can do my job like this you know i prefer the in-person but we've learned how we've learned what works in our job and how we can uh, adapt it. But of, of course, like you said, if you're in production operations, um, an artist, of course, a symphony musician, it's like, that's different. But I think on the administrative side, 
um, you can, I think you can have that flexibility, but you have to ask the organization for it. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the challenges and benefits to being able to have that flexibility and choosing when you work from home and when you go in the office? I think it allows for, I think over the long term, it creates that level of culture that um, we had spoken about earlier. It kind of dismantles this very um, capitalist, you know, uh, driven productivity needs to only exist in one place. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it gives more agency for workers, especially in arts workers, um, to say, hey, I am most productive and get the most done if I'm working two days a week from home. So it it allows people to, it, it allows the organization and their employees to meet each other where they're at, where there's no longer this expectation of like, you have to be in the office, but now it's like, If you want to be in the office, great. But if you feel like you can get more done when you're at home, like by all means work from home. I think the challenge of it will be, um, I think it'll just be logistical challenges. Like again, like meeting schedules and setting up virtual for those who are at home versus those who are in the office. Mm -hmm. But I don't, but I think it actually is going to prove to be a a great benefit for a productivity in the workplace in terms of, um, and team culture, workplace culture, um, as well for volunteers and boards, I think it'll open up a lot more participation because if people can attend board meetings virtually, or maybe we only move board meetings to be virtual and committee meetings are in person or something, I think that'll open it up for a lot of people who sit on boards but aren't ever in town to, you know, to attend the meeting, the virtual will open that up. So I I think this is only a good thing. I think this is only a good thing. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, My, I guess my kind of wrap it up question is something you would like to advocate for, like a moment of advocacy, whether it's, arts related or just job search related or, you know, whatever you'd like to take this moment for. Cause I was going to ask what you feel like some of the positive outcomes have been, but I kind of feel like we really touched on that, that just the flexibility of being able to work remotely and having an opportunity in life when we can add people can advocate for themselves and whatever their home life requires in that moment of accepting a job. Yeah. I think, um, well, I think, Oh, there's so much I want to advocate for because, (laughs) because, because the first thing, the first thing else I'll just mention and I'll be very brief, but I think the first thing to that with this flexibility and accessibility, um, there also should be an expectation that arts leaders lead with an equitable and anti-racist lens in their work, in all aspects of their work. 
And it's not just the work that's on stage, it's the operations of the office in, in which that produces the work on stage. So it is in every sort of regard. I think organizations need to reckon with the fact that um, the arts have been very, you know, pre very predominantly white, centered around privilege, centered around act power. And so they have to do the work and they have to continue the work. And it's not just about accessibility and uh, the virtual definitely helps. And I know that's what we've been talking about a lot, but I think it's also finding ways um, in all departments of the arts, marketing, development, uh, hiring, all this um, to create anti and implement anti-racist practices into the arts. <clears throat> And then the other thing I will say, going back to job search and job readiness, is I really would like to advocate for our working arts professionals to get involved in mentorship of undergraduate students in some way, um, whether that's you know guest speaking at a class or you know offering their time to look over cover letters and resumes because I feel like while while the arts admin programs in the country are incredible, I think nothing really does beat hearing from people who are working on the ground. And especially mm -hmm. for undergrads who are just entering the field, to have somebody there who helps them or guides them or is just, or just again, just, just is there to bounce ideas off of. I guess I'm not, you know, I tell my undergrads, yeah, reach out to people, but I want to also tell professionals, like, you should also connect and give back to the profession by making, making sure that, you know, like students and early career professionals know that you're available for questions. Yeah. Yeah. Because so it shouldn't just fall on the student because the student might not know where to look. Mm -hmm. So and and again, intimidation is real. Imposter syndrome is real. It is all mm -hmm. very real. And none it's it's no stronger than when you're an undergrad just about to go into the workforce. And yeah. so I think it needs to also fall on the career professionals to uh, find those ways in which they can connect with early career professionals and not, and it doesn't have to be even just like a, you know, a six year mentorship thing. It can just be a, you know, Hey, I'm available for questions. Like if you director of arts admin program, wherever it's like, if any of your students want to send me a cover letter, I'm happy to look it over. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's creating that access for students as well. I think professionals need to do that more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, Ohio State started putting together this mentoring program. Um, I guess they started it maybe three years ago now. Um, and they match students with an alumnus from the College of Arts and Sciences. Mm -hmm. And it has been one of the most rewarding experiences for me outside of like any professional uh, like professional accomplishments aside that I'm very very like ridiculously proud of yeah it's been so great to just talk to this student because they're really bright 
I mean, this, like this girl is going places and if I can help her to get to her goals, then, you know, more power to her because yeah. she had somebody helping her on the way. So I, right. I definitely think that the mentoring aspect, yeah, that's a great thing to advocate for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it to not fall just on the, um, just on the student, but I, you know, I hope institutions do step up in connecting the professionals with the students as well in that regard, like, just like the Ohio state, um, mentorship, which that sounds incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, I mean, everybody should be doing it. It's really cool. Right. Um, yeah. Cause they don't partner you with somebody who studied what you studied. Like the girl that I was mentoring this oh. year was a neuroscience major. Yeah. Which wow. I think is such an interesting thing that you would think that they would want to, like I studied oboe performance. You'd think that they would want to pair me with like a music student, but it's almost the opposite where they want to pair students with somebody who kind of knows nothing about what they studied. Yeah. I'm not really sure what the logic is behind that there. I'm, I'm sure there is some, but it's been really amazing. That's really, I really incredible. love it. It's fun. Yeah. Well, it's been super great to talk to you. This, this has, has been, been really so fun. fun. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And um, I can't wait to have you back for another special episode. We'll have to come up with something really fun. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. I can't wait. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye, Jackson. That concludes this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you missed any episodes from season one, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anchor.fm slash arts manager podcast, where you can also send me messages. I would love to hear from you about what you've enjoyed from this podcast and what you would like to hear for season two coming out this fall. Until we meet again, stay safe, everyone.